Today, Pastor Javen will continue the series called Exodus from Exile, exploring the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah. This morning, we'll see the importance of repentant and worshipful hearts. So take a moment now and prepare your heart for today's service. You know, transcendence is a word. It's defined as the existence or an experience that goes beyond the normal or the physical everyday level of life. That's, that's how you de- they define transcendence. And there's a longing inside all of us for transcendence. There's a longing inside each of us to get to a place or to, to experience, at least for just a moment, a place that is beyond that everyday level of normal physical existence in life. That's why so many of us go on vacations. Because we try to find that place of transcendence. We have some pictures I want to show you because some of these may represent that place of transcendence for you where you escape that normal, physical, everyday level of life. Maybe it looks like this for you. Yeah, see, see, praise God. Some of you on that sand, you know, and if you're like me, if I'm going to go to the beach, that's the kind of looking beach I want to go to. No offense to Dirty Myrtle, but that's just kind of, that's the beach that I like, Right. Maybe for you, that level of transcendence looks like this, sitting on a porch swing with a cup of coffee, swinging back and forth, looking at the beautiful mountain scenery. Maybe that's what it looks like for you. Maybe for you, you want to get in it and you want to, you want to camp in it. You want to hike in it, right? You want to live in it. That's not for me. I like a bed and a, and a potty, right? But, but for some of you, that's transcendence, right? Maybe this next one, maybe this is that place for you on a slope somewhere with some skis, Nice cold weather. This is what this takes you away. It gets, it's your momentary place of happiness. That that escape. Maybe maybe it's this. Maybe it's on a boat with a bobber in the water. Right. It's it's or you don't even need that. You just sit in the boat and let the water just kind of rock you back and forth. That's your place. Maybe it's none of those. But for most of us, we know that that life doesn't. I mean, that's an escape, right? Life doesn't always look like that. For us, life really every day looks more like this. That's what life looks like, right? It's just a mess. It's a cluster mess. It's just crazy. That's what life was. And so for us, maybe, I mean, it's not a transcendence. Maybe we just want, we would long for ideal, right? You long for an ideal economy, right? I I praised God the other day. I was, found eggs for $2. I I told Jenny, I said, how awesome is this, Right? We, you long for an ideal economy. You long for an ideal income, right? You long for an ideal retirement. You long for an ideal afternoon or evening at home. You long for ideal kids, right? There's a lot of quiet, parents are quiet. I'm not, I'm not falling into that trap, David. I'm not falling into that. You, you got kids and kids that are longing for ideal parents. That's what's going on, right? But we have this longing. We have this longing in us. As we move into Ezra and and Nehemiah today, we're going to see a group of people that that have an interesting response to not so ideal, not so transcendent circumstances and situations in their life. Um, Ezra chapter 3 is where we're going to go to to start us this morning. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. It'll be on the screen as well. But Ezra chapter 3. I'm going to start at verse 1. We're just going to read a few verses here. I want us to see what's happening with the people as they've 
been obedient to God. They followed the stirring of God. They they've went back to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel and some other leaders. And in Ezra chapter 3, verse 1, it says, In early autumn, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the, all the people assembled in Jerusalem with a unified purpose. And just hold on to that statement in your mind for a little bit. Then it says, Then Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, joined his fellow priest and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, with his family in rebuilding the altar of the God of Israel. They wanted to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, as instructed in the law of Moses, the man of God. Even though the people were afraid of the local residents, they rebuilt the altar at its old site. Then they began to sacrifice burnt offerings on the altar to the Lord each morning and each evening. So what we're seeing, we're seeing this first wave of people going back to their homeland. We talked about this last couple of weeks. Many of these people, some of them didn't necessarily grow up there. Some of them did. They're older. But you got some going back to a homeland where they've only heard stories about. They've been captive in their, their home. The, their, the Israelites have been captive. The, the, those from Judah have been captive in Babylon for 70 or more years at this point. And they're returning back. And the places that they're going back to, the places that they're, they're returning to, they're all destroyed. They're all in destruction. They're all in ruin. Their homes that either they grew up in or that their family grew up in, destroyed. But not only that, ultimately, the place that was the center of their faith, it's the place that their faith centered around. Everything about their faith, the temple of God was in complete destruction and it was in ruins. And they returned to this place and they had no wall of protection around their city, no wall of protection around where they lived out their faith and where they worshiped God. And it said that despite their fears, despite what they were afraid of around them, the first thing they did was they built an altar and they sacrificed on it and they worshiped God. So it begs a question for us. When you're faced with situations in your life where moments where fear is elevated in your life, moments in your life cause fear to be elevated. What is your first response? What is your first reaction? What's the first thing that you do in those moments? When you find out that you have, that there's a health scare, like Roddy was talking about, that there's a sickness when something's going on. What's the first response, the first reaction? What's the first thing that you do in that situation? When you find out that your pay is being cut or you're losing your job, What's that first response, first reaction, first thing you do? You start having problems at at home, whether it be in marriage, within the family unit. When problems arise, what's the first reaction, first response, first thing you do? To pray, to fast, to seek God only after you've done everything else is backwards. Seeking God and getting in the presence of God should be our first reaction, our first response, and the first thing we do in everything. Especially in those moments when we have the, our, our levels of fear in our life rise because of something going on. That doesn't mean that we don't seek counsel. It doesn't mean we don't go to professionals 
doesn't mean we don't do those other things. It just means that God's presence is the first place we go. And as we get into the presence of God, a question we need to ask ourselves is, do I love the thing that I'm praying for more than I love God? Because if I love the thing that I'm praying for more than I love God, then what's going to happen is if I don't get the answer I want towards the thing I'm praying for, then I'm going to question God. I'm going to doubt God. I could turn from God. And that's why we talked about what we talked about in our Shape Up series in January. The whole reason we have a life of prayer and we get into the presence of God in prayer is to learn to love God more. The more we do that, the more we love God. And the more we love God, and then we bring those things to him in prayer, the more we see his perspective towards the things we're praying for and towards what we are longing for. But if we get to a place where we feel, where we realize the thing I'm praying for, I love that more than I love God. Or if there's anything in my life that I love more than I love God, we need to come to a place of repentance. We need to repent in our life. When we find those things, repentance is what we see immediately through every single wave of people that grow back, go back. These three different ways we see in Ezra and in Nehemiah. When, when, when Cyrus sends back the first group, we, we begin to see them repenting of the sins of their nation. And when they get into the place, they're building the altars. First thing they're doing, repenting. When Ezra goes back in Ezra chapter seven and chapter eight, we'll dive into that more in a couple of weeks. One of the first things Ezra does is he leads the nation in repentance. When Nehemiah has a burden over the wall and what's taking place in his, in, in his homeland before he goes back. The first thing he does is he repents to God for the sin of their nation. When he gets back, when they finish rebuilding the wall, the first thing the people do is they repent. Repentance is important in our life. I want us to see what happens in Nehemiah chapter nine. When the people do go back, Nehemiah chapter nine, just a few verses here or after they've finished rebuilding the wall around their home. Nehemiah chapter nine, verse one, it says on October 31st, the people assembled again. And this time they fasted and dressed in burlap and sprinkled dust on their heads because that was a show and a sign of repentance. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners, basically all those who did not worship God like they do. As they confessed their own sins and the sins of their ancestors. And then listen to this. They remained standing in the place for three hours while the book of the law of the Lord their God was read aloud to them. Then for three more hours, they confessed their sins and worshiped the Lord their God. Now listen, religious people. People, you know, just, just, they're religious. It's not just about, it's not about relationship with God. They're religious. Religious people, they always try to maintain this image that says, I've got my life all together. They don't want people to see them hurting. They don't want people to see them sin or fail. They don't want people to know that they need God every day. <laughs> that they need the grace of God. That they need the forgiveness of God. Because for people to know that, then I'm weak and I'm not a very good religious person. 
But the problem with that mentality that we have, that if, if we have that mentality as a person, the problem with that mentality is we are concealing who we really are. We're not allowing God to change who we are. And that's why we need repentance. Again, in Ezra, Ezra chapter three, the first thing they do is they build an altar. The altar is the place where their sin is dealt with and the people meet with God. That's what the altar was. Repentance is a turning from, spiritually speaking, in relationship with God, repentance is a turning from something in your life and a turning to God. Repentance is not coming to God and say, I like what I see that you have to offer. I want to add you, God, to my lifestyle. That's not repentance. Repentance is coming to God and say, God, take over my lifestyle. Change me. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher. He said, repentance grows as faith grows. Don't make any mistake about it. Repentance is not a thing of days and weeks a temporary penance to be got over as fast as possible. No, it is the grace of a lifetime, like faith itself. Repentance is the inseparable companion of faith. Now, you think about us, Jesus, in the prayer that he taught his disciples and teaches us to pray, within that prayer is, forgive me of my sins as I forgive those who sin against me. It's, it's the whole thought Jesus knew we were going to constantly need to come to him. His forgiveness doesn't run out. That's why he told the disciples and Peter and those, when they said, how often should we forgive each other? Basically as much as you need to. Forgiveness doesn't run out because repentance is not going to run out until God comes back. Jesus comes back. And the thing about repentance is when we repent, there's going to have to be something that we sacrifice. There's going to be something that we have to give up, something that we love that God says, I've got something better. And there's a sacrifice that has to come with it. We know that everything that God gives us, the enemy counterfeits. The counterfeit of repentance in our world today, and really has been for a long time, is tolerance. See, culture makes us think, That if we're intolerant, if you're intolerant to something about my life, that means you don't love me. Well, it's quite the contrary. It's possible that the reason I'm intolerant of what's in your life is because I love you. And because I know what that thing in your life is doing to your life. And not only that, ultimately what it will do to you eternally to your soul. I can be intolerant of something in someone's life, but still love the person. That's not impossible, (laughs) despite what culture tells us. God's word revealed things to the people of God that they needed to repent about. When we looked at in that passage there in Nehemiah chapter nine, and we're reading that, it said that they read God's word and then they repented from what they was revealed to them in their life. When we were reading that, some of you couldn't get past the fact that they did it for three hours. They read for three hours and then they repented for three hours. Some of you were shook by that, right? Wow, that is a long church service. It's not the only time that happens. We'll see it again in a couple of weeks. 
But the point is they got into God's word, God's law, and what they discovered from his word, what they discovered from his law, they said, we need to repent. We need to change some things about their life. But here's what they didn't do. They didn't say, well, if there's things about our life that God was intolerant of, the whole reason we went into exile was because God was intolerant of the way we were living. And we went into exile. Our people went into exile. God must not love us. No, that's not what they said. They realized the reason they went into exile was because there was things that God was not tolerant of. But God's love never stopped. God's love was always with them. And God's love was always for them. Just because there's sin that God is not tolerant of doesn't mean that God does not love you. And we look at this on the other side of the cross, through a lens on the other side of the cross. Jesus Christ went to the cross and gave his life for us on the cross because there's things about sin that God is intolerant with. And he is intolerant of sin. But Jesus went to the cross even when we were still sinners. Just because there's something that God is intolerant with, God doesn't mean God doesn't love you. He still loves you. And God is righteousness. And when we come to Christ, his righteousness is placed on us. So what does that mean? It means that we don't confuse his grace with a free pass to disobey God. It means that we don't ask God to conform to our standards and our ways of living. We conform to God's standards. It means that we don't dig into this word and try to manipulate this word to fit the way that I want to live. It means that we conform to the standards by which God has laid out in his word. Instead of tolerating sin, we need to be a people who repent of sin. Instead of celebrating sin, we need to be a people that crucify sin in our life. And if you think, well, I can't change, I cannot change in a way you're right because on your own, you cannot change. And that's why you need to get into the presence of God. And as we have said from the beginning of this year, the more you get in his presence, the more you grow in your understanding of his love for you, the more you begin to change the way you live your life. But another aspect of repentance that we need to understand It's not just repentance to God, it's repentance one to another. It's what the nation did. It said they they separated themselves because they understood the people of the world, I I can't, I mean, they're the people of the world. We need to get together. We need to repent within ourselves. But Jesus made this very important, a repentance one to another. I want to show you what he said in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter five, verses 23 to 24, he says, if you're presenting a sacrifice, so this is what these people were building back up to. These were the things that they did. And Ezra and Nehemiah is what we see them building back up to these customs that they lived in. And Jesus, they were still doing this in the day that Jesus was around. And he says, so if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar of the temple, and there would be lines, people would be in long lines, bringing their sacrifice, and they would have to wait in these long lines. And Jesus tells them, if you're in a line and you're ready to present a sacrifice at the altar temple, and then you suddenly remember, look at what he says, that someone has something against you. Think about that. Not that you have something against someone. You all of a sudden remember 
someone has something against you. It has been, it has been made aware to you that someone has something against you. It's a lot easier to go to someone and talk to someone when they've done something to you, right? It's a lot different for you to go to someone when you've done something to them. But Jesus is saying, when you realize that you, that there is someone that has something against you. And again, what this does too, is this negates the whole thought in the process where, well, I'm not responsible for how people receive what I do and what I say. That's their choice for how they receive that. Jesus is saying, I beg to differ. If you, if someone has something against you, you need to leave your sacrifice at that altar right now. And you need to go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. God is saying that what you did to them, how they received what you said and what you did, you reconciling with them is more important right now than you coming to this altar with your sacrifice. And in fact, you better go deal with that before you expect God to deal with you. It's important. Do not leave it out there. Why do I I mention that? Because if you go back to Ezra chapter 3 verse 1, that phrase that we saw at the end of that verse, it said, all the people assembled in Jerusalem with a unified purpose. One translation says that they came together as one person, as one man. Before they built the altar... Before they worshiped, they unified themselves. Jesus prayed over and over. You see it in John chapter 17. Jesus prayed over and over in the garden before he was arrested. And before he went to be crucified, he prayed, God, keep my disciples unified. God, keep your church unified. God, keep the people who follow you and call on my name unified together. Because he knew the enemy was going to do nothing less than try to divide the body of Christ than to try to divide those who follow him. He does everything he can to bring division, to bring dissension, and he'll do it in relationships and he'll do it in what the church and the body of Christ believes. He's looking to divide. He's looking to deceive. But we've got to be unified and not allow disagreements, not allow grudges, not allow hurts one from another to separate us, to divide us from being able to do what God is calling us to do as a body of Christ. Now, this does not mean that we tolerate sin in the body for the sake of unity. I'm going to leave that hanging there and we'll come back to that in a couple weeks because we're going to tackle that and that ought to be fun. But there's a reason, there's a reason that Paul stressed our obligation that we have one to another. Over a hundred different times in his letters, he talked about, there's one another passages. Love one another, encourage one another, build one another, spur one another on, greet one, how we greet one another. There's constant one another passages. There's a reason because he knew the enemy wants to do nothing more than divide. There's a reason he talked about in Romans and in, in chapter 12 and Corinthians chapter 12 about us being like a body and he used the analogy of a body like we talked about last week because he knows that we need to stay unified. So what, what divisions 
do you see in your heart towards others? What hurt, this is a harder question, what hurt have you caused in someone's life because of something you said, because of something you did, even though you didn't mean it to hurt, but it was received in that way? What hurt have you caused? What do you need to do to bring unity again and to unify again so that the body can be together as one person? unified with one purpose and one goal. Because for there to be corporate worship, there has to be corporate repentance. And this is what we see. We see them repent before God, and then we see them worship God. And they worship despite their fears. They worship in the middle of the rubble. They worship in the middle of the chaos and the disorder all around them. They just worshiped God. They worshiped God, remembering who he was, remembering what he did, believing that he was going to continue to do that in their life. In Ezra, we see that they began, they they celebrated a feast of tabernacles. Basically, this was a feast that they would do uh, ever since the Exodus. They would do these these feasts. And this, this feast particularly was a reminder of what God did for them as a nation freeing them from exile in uh, Egypt and slavery. And they would live for a week in shelters in these temporary homes and these temporary tents to remind them of what God had done, to remind them of God's faithfulness and that he will continue to be with them. If you keep reading in Nehemiah chapter nine, and I encourage you to do that this week, and you read this beautiful prayer, this worshipful prayer that the people pray, And within this prayer, they're remembering essentially four different things about God's faithfulness and God's promises. And real quick, I want to point out what those things are. One, they remembered that God was a God that did not abandon his people. He never abandoned them. He never left them. Over and over, we see in that prayer, God saw their affliction and he heard their cries. He never abandoned them. God was always there for them, regardless of what had happened in their life, regardless of where their sin had taken them. God was always there. He did not abandon them. And again, when we look on the other side from a lens on the other side of the cross, we look at the cross and we realize God is a God that has not abandoned us. God is a God that has made a way for us. And when we see the cross, we understand and we realize we have a hope in the middle of everything that we deal with us, deal with. Listen, some of us come into this room week in and week out on Sundays to worship God, to celebrate God. And we come in here, some of us, we've had a great week. We've had a a wonderful week. Everything's been going great. Everything's hunky-dory. Everything's wonderful. We come in here and it's great. Some of us, we've had a horrible week. We've carried a lot of burdens and we come into this place with burdens. And you need to know that there's not a tear that you cried this week over those burdens or that you maybe even cried this morning that God isn't aware of. There's not an angst in your heart, a hurt in your heart or in your life that God is not aware of and that God doesn't know about. He's not abandoned you. He's not left you. As the psalmist, as David said, he said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. In another place, David said, where can I go from your presence? I can't go anywhere. I can't go here. I can't go there. I cannot hide from your presence. Your presence is always with me. Even if I don't feel it, even if I don't realize it, even if I don't know it, you are there. 
Because God doesn't abandon you. They remember God doesn't abandon you. Another thing they remember, we see them remembering about God's faithfulness is that God guides and he protects and and he, and he leads. He guides and he leads. He directs, he instructs we see throughout their prayer, them remembering how God gave them a cloud by day and a fire by night that led the people of God. We read that and we think, man, that is awesome. Where is mine? If I had a cloud during the day and a fire by night to lead me, life would be a lot easier, wouldn't it? Kind of like those retirement commercials. Just follow the green or whatever color line it is. The orange bunny. You just find that you're going to retire with millions. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? But the the point is, the thing that we see is what God gave them was he gave them his, his word. He spoke to the people through Moses and he gave them his word. He gave them each other and he gave them his presence that was represented in that cloud by day and that fire by night. And it's no different for us. He has given us his word. He has given us each other and he has given us his Holy Spirit, his presence that walks with us, that lives with us, that guides us. And not only that, works through each other towards each other. God is a God that guides and he's a God that instructs and he's a God that leads. So they remember that God's not a God that abandoned us. He's a God that guides us. He's a God that leads us. And he is a God that provides for his people. As they're praying, as they're worshiping, they remember God gave them manna to eat. He gave them water to drink. He provided for them. He met their needs where their needs needed to be met. But here's the thing. It wasn't according to their perspective. It was according to God's. And here's what's bad about it. When they were in the wilderness and they were getting the manna to eat and the water to drink, there was a time and there was a point where they became frustrated with the way God was providing their needs that they would rather go back to the life of death that they were living in in order to enjoy 15 minutes of good food. But how much does that speak to our life? There's so many times where we are rescued from something in our life, but we, we, we would rather go back to a life of death to enjoy 15 minutes to appease some type of appetite than to live into the promises and the provisions that God has given us. Because for a moment, they don't make us feel like the other thing make us, made us feel. But God's a God that meets our needs and God's provision for what we need is always better than our perception of what we want. It's always better. So remember, God's a God that doesn't abandon his people. God is a God that guides and instructs. God is a God that provides for our needs. And they remember that God is a God that is always ready to forgive. Always ready to forgive. What we see in their memories of God's people as they worship, as they pray, is that, that, and, and what we see in their life is everything would be going great for them and they'd be clinging to God. But once everything gets great and once everything feels good, then they, they go back to ways that are opposite from what God has called them to live. And as they do that, God says, I'm, I'm in, I, I don't tolerate that. So he gives them over to their enemies. But when they begin to seek God and they begin to cry out to God and they begin to long for God to rescue them again, what does God do? Does God say, nope, you didn't need me then. Why do you need me now? That's not what God says. God says, I'm right here. And he responds to what's happened in their life with mercy. He responds to what's happened in their life with grace. He is a God that is abounding in love. There is nothing that keeps us from the forgiveness of God. There's nothing that keeps us, there's nothing that keeps God from pardoning our sins other than our resistance to go to God through Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that keeps that from happening. God is a God that does not abandon us. 
He, he is a God that guides and he instructs. He is a God that meets our needs, that provides for our needs. And he is a God that's always ready to forgive. So they made a choice to repent and to worship God. Praise and worship, repentance, it is always a choice. And it is a choice that we have to make. It's not always easy. Sometimes you have to do it standing in the middle of chaos, in the middle of rubble, in the middle of disorder, in the middle of troubling circumstances, surrounded by fear. But you have to make the choice to worship. And you have to make the choice to turn to God. Look at the words that the psalmist says, Psalm 34. He said, I will praise the Lord at all times. It's very simple. I'll constantly speak his praises. He's making a choice. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm telling myself. Psalm 42, he says, why am I discouraged? Why is my, why is my heart so sad? Make the choice. Put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my savior and my God. When you make this choice, when you make the choice to focus your attention off of yourself and off of your problems, you make the choice to put your focus on God and the problem solver. You make the choice to worship. You make the choice to commit yourself to him. So they repent and their repentance led them to worship and their worship gave them the courage and the strength to do what God had called them to do. They were a people in Ezra that we see a people committed to rebuilding the temple and they were encouraged because of their worship and their focus on God. I love this statement from Spurgeon. He says, it is our duty and our privilege to exhaust our lives for Jesus. It's what we're called to do. Jesus taught us to pray your kingdom come God, your will be done. Let every day of my life be to live according to your desires and your will. Let me build what you want to build in this, in this life and, and to represent your kingdom on this earth. But as we come to the end of, Exodus, of Ezra chapter three, there's something I want to point out before we wrap up. And it's that some of the people, when they see the foundation being built for the temple, some of the people, the older people who remember what the original temple looked like, they see this foundation and they're like, man, that is not like it was when Solomon built it. Solomon's temple was much bigger. It was much more extravagant. And they're looking at how small this foundation is and they're like, that's not, that's not the same. And they were discouraged. And in Ezra chapter three, it tells us that they wept because they were upset. But I want us to see the words of the prophets. Because see, here was the thing about the prophets in that time is they would come and they would speak God's word to people in situations like this. And I want us to see the words of two different prophets that came in this time and during this time frame and spoke to those who were concerned, who were troubled, who were weeping because it didn't, the temple wasn't looking like it looked before. Haggai chapter two, he's come and he says, does anybody remember this house, this temple in its former splendor? He knew they did. He said, do you, do you remember it? He said, how in comparison does it look to you now? It must seem like nothing at all, this foundation. He goes, he says, but now the Lord says, be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people still left in the land. And now get to work. For I am with you, says the Lord of heaven's army. My spirit remains among you. Listen, the temple might not look like it looked at one time. But my spirit remains among you, the prophet says. 
just as I promised when you came out of Egypt. So don't be afraid. And look, this next statement, this is from Zechariah. Another message came to me from the Lord. Zechariah goes to Zerubbabel. He goes to the people. He says, Zerubbabel is the one who laid the foundation of this temple and he'll complete it. And then you will know that the Lord of heaven's armies has sent me. He says, don't despise these small beginnings. Don't despise them. For the Lord rejoices to see the work just begin. To see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand, the seven lamps represent the eyes of the Lord that search all around the world. It's just going along with the prophecy that he's seeing. But here's what I want us to get out of this. It's just because the way God moves doesn't always look the same. It doesn't mean that God's not moving. Just because the move of God and the pres- the way the presence of God moves in this world and moves in people's hearts and moves in people's lives, it might be different from how we saw it before. It doesn't mean God's not moving. What matters is a body of people, a group of people humbling themselves with repentant hearts, one to another, getting in the presence of God, making the choice to worship God, despite their surroundings, despite what's going on and building what he's calling them to build. And as we do that, as we do that in his presence, God's spirit will be with us. God's spirit will move through us and God's presence would move. I love this statement from the leaders in Nehemiah where they repented for three hours. They read God's word for three hours. They repented. And in Nehemiah chapter nine, verse five, we see that the leaders look out to him and they say, stand up and praise the Lord, your God, for he lives from everlasting to everlasting. So that's exactly what we're going to do as we end this service today. We're going to stand up and we're going to praise the Lord, our God, who lives from everlasting to everlasting. Because despite the decisions that we make, we know that we serve a God that never abandons us. We serve a God that always guides and instructs us. We serve a God that provides our every need. And we serve a God that is always ready to forgive us. Let's stand together and let's praise the Lord, our God, who lives from everlasting to everlasting. Father, we worship you this day. We worship you this morning. We thank you for what you're doing in our hearts and our lives. And God, I do pray today that as we respond in this moment to worship with you, Father, I pray that you would speak in our hearts. Help us to see today what we need to do, what our choice is today. What choice do we need to make? There may be something somewhere in a relationship we need to mend. We need to find healing. We need to find reconciliation. Father, I pray that if that's if that is in our hearts today, if that's become aware to us, God, move our our hearts, move us, stir us to see that need in our life today, to be reconciled, to be healed through forgiveness. Father, I pray that if there's things in our life that we are tolerating, there's sin in our life that we're tolerating, but we know good and well that it is 
that you are not tolerant of that sin in our life. God, help us to repent. Help us to see that and make the choice today to repent, to turn from that life, to turn to you, Father. And God, I pray today that that we can make the choice to worship you, despite what our circumstances look like, despite what our surroundings look like, despite the fact we might be standing in the middle of rubble, we might be standing in the middle of chaos, we might be standing in the middle of disorder. There may be fear all around us, God. We're going to make the choice today to say that the joy of the Lord is my strength. Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the situations, we're going to make the choice today to say joy of the Lord is my strength. And we are going to worship our God with repentant hearts, with a a mind focused on you and what you have called us to. So today, church, as we worship him, I, I I don't know what your choice needs to be, but I just encourage you today to make a choice to turn to God, to worship God, to celebrate him with everything that's in you. Let's praise the living God today together. If you need prayer in any way today, we would love for you to reach out to us. You can go to our website, bwccambin.com, go to our contact page. You'll find the link there to uh, request prayer or send us anything that you uh, would like to communicate with us today. Or you can also simply text the word prayer to 803-676-7566. And we will be back in touch with you to find out how we can be in prayer for you. God bless you. We hope that you have a great week.